Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Brown Girl Green. I'm Christy Drutman and I interview environmental leaders and advocates about the importance of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, as well as creative solutions to the climate crisis. Today, we are going to be talking about um, the issues on site happening in Tanzania to the Maasai and indigenous peoples of Tanzania. Um, we're going to be meeting with the folks from A Growing Culture who are going to set the scene for us to basically talk about uh, what is currently happening on the ground that is placing the Maasai um, at risk for eviction and displacement from their land. And we are going to learn more about how A Growing Culture is supporting those efforts. So I would love to have our guests from A Growing Culture introduce themselves. And yeah, to get started. My name is Lauren Cardelli. Uh, I'm the founder of A Grown Culture. We at A Grown Culture, we work with peasant and indigenous communities around the world um, who are on the front lines of the, of the struggles for seed, land, and food sovereignty. And with that, we really work in three ways. It's, it's based in storytelling and narrative change because we believe that like <laughs> we all have to be involved in combating systemic change. And a lot of these systems of oppression are held up by false narratives and belief systems. We think the power of story is one of the most important ways to cut through and inspire people for collective action. And so with our storytelling platforms, we work in three different ways. There's the stories we tell, the stories our partners tell, stories the media tells. And how we do that is we have like a media house. We do communications, content creation, videography, um, articles um, where we're confronting these false narratives and illuminating the injustices of a food system that's designed to oppress. And then we work with our partners and coalition campaigns and capacity building workshops to um, support them in the stories that they can tell, building up their communications and narrative capacity so that they can reach larger audiences um, and communicate the realities of what it means to be um, a community on the front lines of food system change. And then finally, we work with press and media, like kind of like a PR firm, where we connect uh, international local news to peasant and indigenous perspectives um, and vice versa. Amazing. And could you explain a little bit more about what brought you to your work specifically with the Maasai in Tanzania? So yeah, Samwell was connected to us by some friends, Nick and Chris Lunch, and the organization Insight Share out of Oxford, um, which works with um, doing participatory video workshops, really trying to break the narrative around how communities, um, stories and struggles are told. So often you have whiteness permeating or, you know, um, you know uh, affluent communities coming in to create a narrative. And there's a power imbalance in that, in that recognition. It becomes voyeurism or the Ken Burns model here is, the Maasai dealing with this issue um, when we know that what should be happening is a different narrative, which is we are the Maasai and this is our story. And Samwell um, has been in the front lines of that community, really reclaiming their own narrative um, and using activism and, and media production to tell that story and get it across the world. And so we were introduced um, to Samwell maybe six or seven years and have stayed in touch since then, have done some projects with them, visited his community um, and um, have worked with them on this issue for a while now. Amazing. And, you know, 
this episode is mostly focused on the issue around conservation in Tanzania and that the reality is, is that the conservation movement actually happening there is in turn actually displacing uh, the Maasai people. And so I would love if you could uh, kind of set the stage for us uh, before we get into conversation with Samuel um, about what, what is happening on the ground there. People are saying that, you know, we need to protect these lands, but it's like for whom? And uh, the, the story that, you know, I read on a growing cultures Instagram um, is that actually the conservation movement that has been happening there has been actively displacing the Maasai indigenous yeah. people. So could you could you kind of um, educate the audience more about that context? I would love to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about the issue um, from more of a bird's eye point of view and allow for some of the details to actually come from from Samuel because he knows them best. And, um, and I think he's going to take the audience on an incredible journey of detail. Um, but to understand the context that this is happening in is so often conservation um, and green technology or climate change agendas are used to um, facilitate um, the same capitalistic and destructive behaviors um, that these concepts are supposed to have eradicated or solved for. And I think that's the, that's the damage, right? Um, years ago in Samuel's community, um, there was an ecotourism company coming in that was involved in this land grab and displacing. I mean, this is ecotourism, right? And this is a community that says we, we support and work with the Maasai. It was Thompson Safari out of, out of Austin. Far too often we um, are seeing how this kind of greenwashing, this exploitation and how we've created um, systems that have allowed for that to happen, right? How is, in the name of conservation, uh, these communities being pushed out and displaced? And I think that's so important to understand and to value as audiences when we look at these things and these narratives, what are we paying attention to, right? Are we paying attention to the humanness and to, like, and what is, in what, and where are we centering in, in the struggle? Like, what we should be pushing for is indigenous self-determination and sovereignty, right? There's a reason this, this ecosystem is so prized and wants to be protected. It's because of indigenous sovereignty and, and leadership in the past. And um, why are we using these kind of reductionist terms to just reduce a food system to an understanding of, of soil or carbon or something? And I think that leads to um, the erasure of not only indigenous and BIPOC voices, but legacies of colonization, genocide, and displacement. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it seems like, you know, actually with Samuel in previous conversations before our interview had brought up to me is that the Maasai and the issues facing the Maasai are just a symptom of a much broader issue like what you're discussing here, that the Maasai is not, even though it feels like a very, intense situation, which it is, it, it's one example of so many happening around the world to indigenous peoples. Is there a form of conservation that exists uh, that isn't dependent on um, like a bureaucratic entity? Like what is conservation if not rooted in that? Because it's like, because it seems like, yes, at the end of the day, like if we wanted real conservation, it'd be rooted in indigenous like land stewardship. But I'm just wondering like, do you just feel like the whole rhetoric of the term conservation is problematic or is there actual ways that it's done well? What I'd love to share, Christy, is that um, one of the beliefs that, that I personally hold in, um, is that 
our relationship to the environment is a reflection of our relationship amongst ourselves. Um, and that sustainability is a byproduct of justice, first and foremost, not the other way around. And so like we we want to focus on pollution and and conservation and, and building soil and yeah. um, this, but like those are reflections of a system rooted in social stratification, hegemony, patriarchy, and white supremacy. And that like to create those environmental outcomes that we want, we have to first address the rot and injustice that's within our society. And far too often whiteness um, can see the elephant in the savannah, not the elephant in the room. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I feel like I feel like there's a lot of good good intention people doing work in this space, in the conservation field and in this space that are really trying to navigate very difficult bureaucratic systems um, that are probably really well funded. And I think there's a lot of people that are that are having to figure out that balance of um, knowing that there is this this system that has led to even the need for conservation um, because we're not living in tune with the earth and with nature and just understanding that reciprocity. The conservation movement is starting as a global movement is starting to reckon with the harm that it's caused to indigenous people in the past. But it's like, is the harm so deep to where like, like, can we actually trust that there's good, good conservation out there? And I guess that's the question that I'm trying to bring into this, into this. Yeah. And is it conservation? It doesn't. And so maybe at the, at the heart of your question, is this conservation still position us in the same kind of Abrahamic viewpoint that got us into this problem in the first place as separate from nature, right? You ask people, what are their favorite animals? Nobody will say human because they view us as separate, right? But like humans are. The conservation, it's, it's, it's an um, otherness, it's an outside perspective, but it's also rooted in now a savior kind of mentality of, um, of systems. And I think that's a, extremely dangerous. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's the framework that we should be uh, using at all. I'm just wondering with like a growing culture and the work that you all do of uh, centering, you know, people like peasant farmers and indigenous peoples first and foremost, how do you all navigate that as like also a, a media entity? Um, like what are some of the principles that you practice to ensure that those narratives get prioritized? Yeah, I think it's complex. And I think that any organization that presents a solution or says they have it right, you should be careful of. And I think at a growing culture, we're constantly learning. Um, and our team comes from all over the world. And the internal work is just as important as the external work. Um, and so uh, we are in constant tension with positionality in our three programs, right? Two thirds of those programs, the stories our partners tell, the work that we do with them in collaboration, Capacity work is, is about supporting the needs of, of the movement that we hold dear. But there's one third of our programs, uh, which is the stories we tell where, where we do center our own perspective and our own critique. And I think it's important to understand that like we're working in service of the movement, but we're also part of the movement. And I think holding those realities um, is, is really important. We have staff from all over the world that live in different contexts and environments and um, have different belief systems, different faiths, like our voices all should be heard as well, you know? And so it's about a balance um, and, and activism is a dance that 
the death of it is it's a quest for purity, you know, and purity is a is a symptom of white supremacy that we have to to push back on. I think it's important that like there's so much more that like um, people that are non-indigenous but want to be in, you know, good relationship with the earth understand that like there's so much more listening that needs to be done so much more centering of narrative especially of indigenous voices that needs to be done we're also necessary in contributing our resources and our support where we can uh to be in relationship with the original stewards of the land and so i just wanted to bring that up too is that like i I think sometimes we are so quick to devalue ourselves and each other. Um, And I think it's important, especially when we're talking about conservation as this episode is focused on, it's like, what are we conserving? What are we trying to uplift? And what are we trying to maintain? And are those systems of extraction or those systems of reciprocity? And I, and I, that's where I really want to begin this episode as we go into this interview with Samuel. And I wanted to know if there's anything else you wanted to offer as part of the context around Tanzania or the Maasai that you wanted to offer before we go into the next part of the segment. I think I, I, I would ask people to, to give their hearts and souls and time to, to listen to such perspectives of Samwell's and others, you know, search for it, um, ask, ask questions and ultimately like you know look at ways that we each uphold these systems and are complicit in their existence um and it's not something to to foster guilt but to create action from thank you so much for joining and now we are going to go into the next segment where we'll be actually interviewing uh samuel who's from the maasai in tanzania to learn more about his perspective of the fight that is happening on the ground there for their land So hi, everyone. Welcome to our segment on Brown Girl Green, where we're going to be talking about the issues around conservation and the relationship with indigenous peoples around the world, specifically observing this case study happening in Tanzania with the Maasai. And we have a guest today who's actually from the Maasai tribe in Tanzania, who's going to be talking to us more about the issues that he is witnessing on the ground around the conservation movement happening there in Africa. And so uh, I would love for you, Samuel, to introduce yourself and tell us more about uh, the Maasai and the lands that you come from. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, My name's uh, Samuel Nangria, and I come from Maasai community in, in northern Tanzania in a place called Ngorongoro. Um, I know most of you might have heard about Ngorongoro Serengeti because these are globally renowned uh, wildlife sanctuaries or protected areas in in Tanzania. And I am here sharing um, some issues and experiences we've been going through as as a group, as an indigenous community here in Tanzania. And various struggles of resistance uh, we've put forward in trying to defend our rights, the rights of Mother Earth, and the rights of everyone in whom we share the environment with. We, the Maasai community, we belong to to the indigenous family, and we protect, uh, we take care, we conserve our environment 
for the sake of our own economic, social, and cultural benefits. Uh, our livelihood is pastoralism. We, are, we keep cows, sheep, and goats. Um, and we, it has been like a challenge for us because all the politicians, uh, researchers, uh, um, are talking about livestock is, is a form of livelihood which is destroying the environment. So we've been like hit by these tragedies. Uh, but on the contrary, the areas we live are very well protected. We have wildlife all across. We share everything. We share water. We share, you know, harmony. We share uh, happiness. We share grass. We share salt. This is the talking on papers, but what is happening on the ground is completely different from what the researchers and particularly from West are talking about. Um, this area, as I said, is very unique because it's an area where you have the protected areas, we have the human beings living alongside. Um, and this arrangement dates back uh, during the British time when the British were living here. Uh, they took, they manipulated or they cheated or rather they robbed our parents in 1959. They kind of presented um, an argument that Serengeti was to be conserved uh, or to be protected. And the negotiation started in 1940. Until 1959, our parents actually had no choice, but they decided to sign um, what we call, what we normally prefer as uh, a constructed consent, something that was really manipulated. Our parents could not speak English, they could not read, but the paper was brought in front of them by somebody who was a government anyway, who had all the powers, all the money, all the guns, as somebody who is a foreign. So our parents had no choice but actually to sign that agreement. Wow. And that agreement, um, as we say, is, is an important milestone, as an important turning point, because one, the British government had to enter into an agreement with our traditional leadership, which is a very, very important uh, structure for us. They recognize our community as a nation that had a governing body, which is very, very important. And we still have the same parallel with the legal with the political system we also have our very strong established internal traditional system so that is why it's so important because we were recognized as a as a nation as a community with a, a very a very established leadership which is which has been fighting which has been struggling to remain relevant within the changing political system in Tanzania so now comes now comes the environment where we are in yeah the British developed all the legal documents, called them laws, called them policies, you know, called them strategies. And when our country uh, became independent, that was 1961, the government inherited all the legacy of colonial government. So you could hear about, you know, Serengeti Conservation Ordinance, you know, Ngorongoro Conservation something. There were so many laws, and yeah, they, they, they divided the, this critical functioning ecosystem into four pieces. This is Masai Mara in Kenya, uh, which is now, it's been separated by the international 
you know, line, they drew this Serengeti, which is the Serengeti National Park. Yeah. And then we have the Ser- Ngorongoro, Ngorongoro Conservation Area. Uh-huh. And then we have Loliondro Game Control Area. So the, the four, they divided, in fact, they bisected, like putting it into four four parts. They lifted the children, and they now pretended to be a black government that was putting forward to conserve the wildlife. But the ideology and, and the concept of conservation is not really from the African country for the Maasai perspective. So <clears throat> we found ourselves in, in partitions. We've been partitioned. This area that we, it was our homeland, but was divided into four four areas. Uh, this is Ngorongoro, Serengeti, Masai Mara, and Loliondo. The wildlife, the so-called migratory you know, system of the wildlife rotating, they do not know that it has been divided. They rotate from Masai Mara to Loliondo to Ngorongoro to Serengeti all along. Every year, they like, you know, yeah. they move like this. So this movement was there for the British. It was there, we were actually part and parcel of that migration. Because when the wild beasts come for calving in Tanzania, the Maasai normally boycott the lowlands. They go to the highlands. Mm-hmm. And when they finish calving, when they go back to Maasai Mara, the Maasai now come down to the lowland. And this arrangement has been like that yeah. for centuries and centuries and centuries. They're basically like stopping your normal pastoral way of exactly. life. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, they utilize and they, and that is how everything functions in the ecosystem. It's not only wildlife, even livestock used to rotate, you know, the rivers, the streams, you know. Yeah. That is how we are. We've been part and parcel of that, you know, that natural movement, that natural migration. Yeah. And now, after the money, after the so called Western, the Yellowstone conservation ideology came into the yeah. then we started having problems. One is because they, they parceled, they put into pieces yeah. the area. Two, the four areas have different laws. Every piece of land has a different law. Wow. But this is a functioning ecosystem. It's an ecosystem that functions in its entirety. Wow. Now, in the eastern part, which is Loliondo, which is where I come from, this is where we have the so-called game control area, Loliondo game control area. It's an area where we are allowed to live, but the government regulates and controls the game. In Ngorongoro, is where we are allowed to live, but the government control everything, including land, you know, mm-hmm. land ownership, you know, uh, benefits, control, you know, grazing, control tourism, control everything. So the masses are just there to, like, they have no role, but they were original inhabitants. But in the Serengeti National Park, this is 14,036 kilometers square. is like a no-go zone. Nobody was there. It's completely for game. It's completely for tourists. It's completely for investors. Wow. So the, the two areas that we live is where is where we are now told you have to live. And this is the remaining part we have. Leave, then we have to cross the border to go to Kenya, which is also impossible. Because they put the line, they divided it, and our brothers and sisters are on the other side. We are here. But now it's impossible to, like, from the citizen perspective you know mm-hmm. if you go to kenya you're a foreigner you are you know a citizen of another country that is not recognized in kenya so now the pull and push we have around now is that the government wants us to leave the two remaining so uh, that way they can so that way they can just like yeah. make the whole region a conservation area 
Sorry. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. And and now, now that we were actually to defend it, but even now that we have to defend it, because our parents signed, uh, they gave it for free, a 14,000 kilometer. You know, 14,000 is not a small... Yeah. <laughs> this is like another country in Europe, you know. This yeah. is really big. Yeah. They signed it for free, and we left, and we decided to use the other side. But now the government says, no, the wildlife are here, and we have to, you know, review the laws so that too. it can be yeah. out of this land completely wow. and it will be, you know, for conservation and investment. Wow. Through researchers, you know, through the funding, uh, through the money, through the, their investors coming to do business in here, the West is still having a lot of influence in this region. So you yeah. could talk about Fauna and Flora International, talk about IUCN, United, you know, International Union for Conservation of Nature, talk about UNESCO, talk about, you know, UN environment, talk about anyone, talk about individuals like Franco-Zoological Society from Germany, all these people are dishing money. Talk about WWF, they're putting money and influencing the government on how these areas should be. Wow. And just to show that, this area, for instance, in Gorongora alone, is, is has so many international statuses. It's been awarded several names. We have no idea who is deciding. Yeah, I was just gonna say it seems so, like these these nonprofits or organizations too, in the conservation field, it sounds like um, they're basically supporting ecotourism or supporting the conservation of these areas, but not acknowledging the Maasai and like, is that is that what's happening? I was just wondering because you brought up WWF and UNESCO, like, what is their role in in this? Like, how are they making the problem worse? I guess. Um, the thing is, these guys understand very well that we are the right owners of this land. Yeah. And for them, all the strategies has been always to expel, to move the Maasai out of this area. Because the more they stay, the more they get to understand their rights, and the more it becomes difficult in the future. And now, with the, with the archive of narratives from 1950, um, even 40, 1940, when the Germans were here, they really developed, they started developing body of narratives that has strategically stood. So it was a body of narratives from the experts, from the researchers, commissioned by yeah. very credible institutions, you know, um, you know, um, scholarly kind of researchers. So there's a full of, you know, a, Big archive of narratives, and very completely from from the Maasai, how they perceive conservation. For instance, what what does conservation mean to us? Maybe how do you be part of this process of conserving these areas? It has always been like, no, we have to get money to big people, separate Maasai from their homeland. Yeah. Could you talk more about like how they're trying to force the Maasai out? Because obviously you're on the ground. You're an you're an activist trying to fight against this. What are the what are the strategies that the government and people are trying to do to to try to you know make you all leave your land? What are what are they doing and how are how are you fighting back against it? They use so many different tools to get us out. One is the fact that they have not uh, engaged us in anything about the narratives. So if anyone goes to the internet and talk about Ngorongoro, what you see is completely a set of you know vision from the West. You don't you don't get unless they 
those are our images for you know marketing purposes, but not for saying anything about images. So that is one area that they have really done it for quite a long time, and they are very sure that they have completely erased our connection so strategically. And secondly, is they use the political system, they use the parliament, you know, they use the council, you know, assemblies to pass regulation, to pass uh, bylaws, to pass the laws, to act the laws that prohibit, um, you know, the masses from using different. In, in our areas, you could hear, like, we have the, this big land, but within that big land, there are, there are some areas called critical areas. This is a technology, you know, critical areas that need to be conserved within yeah. that bigger land that we, we use. Yeah. So that is another way they use, they use the legal system, uh, political system to push our interests out of the papers and mm. also arrest our, our participation uh, in protecting this area. And thirdly, they use media, you know, media plus, uh, you know, the strategic um, researchers and you know they use media to influence the public in the west but also in tanzania that the mass are burdened to this because this man this area is contributing a lot of money you get a lot of money from this area because of tourists so the mass should get out so that this area can benefit more sustainably all the tanzanian citizens because this is an area for national interest yeah yeah i was gonna say something that you had brought up to me um when we were doing like our pre interview previously was just um that they were you know they're offering people by buying them out like giving them a lot of money yeah. to like get homes in other places could you talk a little bit about that too i'm, I'm saying another way another way is actually money specifically generated from these areas uh, there are several ways of you know like for instance now there's something called a voluntary you know a voluntary moving out of the area and if you if you say I am moving, they will pay you money. They will give you a house somewhere, or they will construct you a house, or they will give you money to go for your own and look for somewhere. So now poor people who have been squeezed, who have been really pressed, and they are so poor, many of them will run to that because they have established a scheme, um, kind of a fund to to you know pay for uh, anyone who is willing, who is voluntarily living. And you have to sign a personal agreement that I will never, <laughs> not even my children, not my, you know, not my anything to do with me, will not come back again here. Wow. So uh, it's another way of using money to manipulate the hearts and minds of poor people for them to be able to get money, but to lose everything, to lose their heritage, to lose their land, to lose their livelihood, and lose their identity at the end of the day. So this is another big way now. They are putting money, uh, saying that it is uh, somebody with, in, in Swahili it is called like a voluntary, voluntary relocation. Yeah, so this is another way uh, where um, people are told to voluntarily leave the area and they'll be compensated or they'll be paying money to go because this area is so valuable. It's, it's for the interest of this station and people have to vacate. And, and lastly, is actually about the, so much of a coordinated strategy of imposing restrictions within the area that we live. 
um, in Gorongoro, for instance, there is no, you cannot access the the forest island, you cannot access the crater, you cannot access, you know, some of the rivers, in wow. the name of, these are critical areas in the area, so you are like squeezed to use only what is available, you know, within your, your surrounding, and then and our livelihood is such a mobile one, it's livestock, that need land, need, you know, to yeah. rotate, so that they don't progress. So um, that is another way that they are using. They are using, you know, putting up pressure internally to control, um, you know, and block the uses of different areas within the area so that in the name of critical areas that need to be conserved. And they are really using a lot of money, employing police to ensure that people are not allowed to move. How are, like people that are you know not taking the money like yourself and other people like how are you trying to like fight back against that i would love if you could talk about the the video project that you're doing with the young people in your tribe um and just other ways that you're trying to resist this yeah uh, as i say this is a long shot uh, because we are building the capacity to as a way of responding to this um um, body of narratives that has been built yeah. so much of walls and you know stores of narratives and we say instead of keeping complaining we can start it's, it's too late but it's much better than nothing so we established um, a video collective uh, and we trained on um, uh, a methodology called participatory video PV uh, you can actually see it in the internet is a very empowering uh, tool. It's a social technology that is, you don't need to go to secondary school, you don't need to go to college, you just need to master the skills of, you know, you know, filming and being able to process the, the products, being able to do the, you know, cutting. Um, and so far, since we started, we have actually been able to do so much of videos from our own. And another important thing about it is that our community trusts their children because we know for us, we, even when I was just a grown up, I know what I knew is that the camera is belongs to, to the white man because they're always carrying the cameras. But now when we see our children, our daughters and boys having the camera and coming and setting the camera, you know, and you know, you feel like this is uh, a revolution. This is something that is undoing what has been written, what has been said about us without our knowledge. If you go to Maasai community as a stranger, if you try to, to take a photo of a child, of a, um, a, a woman or anybody, they will refuse because they know it's been a lot of misuse of their faces. It is only in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa where you find the Maasai faces in the National Geographic, for instance. You know, they, I, we don't know how they ended up there, but there are so many of, you know, a lot of faces, a lot of, you know, jewelry, a lot of our things we use for our culture has been taken without wow. our knowledge, without our consent. Wow. So this is a revolutionary process where we try to use the next generation. Now, instead of complaining, we should start taking the steps and filling the gap. We know it's a long way to go, but we know there will be always, um, it's much better than keep complaining. And, and we started when we, from the historical injustices, it's quite a big thing. What we did is we 
I I've been I went to UK. This is 2017. I was invited uh, to attend a, a meeting with other indigenous leaders from three continents, and we were talking about climate change. And what happened is at the end of the meeting, we were invited to for an open lecture in in, in Oxford University, and then later on we were invited to go to see. Uh, you know, the precious, the classic Petriver Museum. This is a museum within the Oxford University. And I went there as a tourist. They wanted us to appreciate how much of an accumulation of things from different, from all over the world. You know, all the communities, white and black and green. And <laughs> so what happened is, I, I saw, I, when I was passing through the, you know, this, you know, temperature regulated you know, corridors within the museum. Um, I, I found um, some artifacts from my community. Wow. And sadly, well, there's thousands of them, but I, I was very much interested with five of them because in our community, we have artifacts. We have jewelry that is meant for decoration and we have jewelries or artifacts that are sacred that are spiritual, yeah. that are so much connected to our... And I found four of them where one is inheritance uh, for the for the boys, another one is for marriage, marriage system, as traditional marriage system, you have to go to have something, and another one is for the babies, and another one. So I told them, no, I cannot tolerate, I have to say something. I'm, I'm so glad that I've been brought here as a tourist, but unfortunately, I turned up you know, like bye, you know, like no, no, no. The change, you know, my it's mood, so my heart up. has been changed completely. Of course. I'm so sorry because I know, you know, these things. You know, another one is 180 years, another one is 100 years, another one 80 years. I told them no, I cannot write. Yeah. Good. I have to say something, and yeah. I have to say something. I, I promise you, I'll follow up. So this is how we started. I'm going to send you uh, something yes, to do please, with how please. the participatory video, how the participatory video actually ended up, you know, bringing the museum to you know to the to the ground. Good. Because when I came back, I, I used the video, uh, the, the the community video collected to document the reaction of the elders, the reaction of our traditional system. Wow. We found this. This is a photo of something I found. How did you? How can you explain? Mm -hmm. This thing is not cannot even be learned within the community. There's no way you can give out as a price. Yeah. There's no way you can sell. And it was even for those years when our culture was so rich, and people were like, stealing all of it. Yeah, I sent a video. I sent a video to the director of the museum, and she she with the management of the museum had to have a look at it, wow. and the elders were crazy. Days, wow. like you know, yeah. So, this <laughs> is from 2007 to 17, yeah. 2018. We went as a delegation to, to Oxford. So, this is yeah. how now, even recently, um, yeah. the museum director, because we are in a serious discussion about uh, we have already done a lot with our spiritual system because we have detection system in Massa community, whom we used to, to detect. I, the circumstances under which these things were taken, and yeah, we haven't yeah. been able to establish, plus the record, historical record. So uh, this is just one example how 
a video, a participatory video can be such a revolutionary process, yes. such a revolutionary tool yeah. that can really bring yeah. um, people to, to account. I wanted to finish off with the last question. Um, if you can, you know, uh, like leave the audience with like what, for those of us who don't live in Tanzania, but we want to support what's going on with the Maasai, we want to stand up and support the work that you all are doing. Um, what are the calls to action that you have that people outside okay. of Tanzania can do? Okay, we have three action, three calls of action that are going on now. We need to engage with our government. We are trying to put up a framework where we can have an equal footing in terms of engaging and talking and discussing the future of these areas uh, with our government. Two is we also have um, a legal arrangement. We we are putting up a court case. In fact, asking the court to put uh, a court order to stop uh, further eviction because uh, it is now blatantly known that we have not been involved. You know, this decision has been made somewhere and they push it to to the implementation. So we are putting up a court case. And, and lastly, is we are asking the international community, as I said to you before, we have three big petitions. One is the general petition. We were supported by Abbas, Abbas, maybe you know Abbas, um, which is about just general public asking the government of Tanzania not to evict the Maasai. But secondly, we have a petition that is about boycott. We are asking the two operators, you know, those who organize to us, to say if the Maasai will be evicted, then they won't bring the tourists here mm -hmm. because it's the money that we bring that is killing us. And and so those are the three things. Uh, if anyone is interested, possibly through YouTube, then you can give the details. But the most important thing is you share the web, you share, spread the news. Um, across your networks because the more we are the, the world is so such a small thing you know the leaders will get messages from other people and i'm sure they might listen and if there is anyone who is interested and particularly from indigenous community we know that we have our own ways of praying we we, we pray and we you know if anyone is interested then you you let me know and we'll see how that is going to work. Otherwise, uh, so far, even with this time you have taken with us, it's a great support. You know, you're going to share. Yes. Yeah. No, thank you so much. I wish we had so much more time, but that was those are great calls to action. We'll post the links to everything you mentioned in the episode below. And thank you so much for your time. And I want to spread the word for this all over the world. So thank you for joining us, Samuel, and keep up the amazing work that you're doing out there for the Maasai and your people. Thank you.